Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Fay, and we have returned uh, via Zoom today um, back to the UK. I have uh, Sue Grimmett and Peter Cat with me, both with nature sort of backgrounds. Sue, it's good to see you getting uh, in on the Zoom background at long last. Yeah, the alternative was the metal filing cabinet behind me, and I'm in the church <laughs> office tonight, so right. yeah, it's a better option. Beautiful. And uh, and Peter, you seem to be in some forest somewhere as well. That's the Lamington National Park, part of the Gondwana uh, rainforest remnant. And that's an Antarctic beach behind me. <laughs> Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, we're so excited to uh, be joining someone today as our guest, who uh, probably the backgrounds are quite appropriate for today's guest. His name is Steve Aisthorpe. He is a mission development worker for the Church of Scotland and author of new book, Rewilding the Church. Steve, thank you so much for, for joining the podcast. Pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. And what background are you running with today? Yeah, so the background you're seeing there is the area where I live. Um, in the Scottish Highlands, so it's the Cairngorm National Park, and actually the valley in which I live, on one side of it, uh, all the landowners have a kind of rewilding strategy going on, and on the other side, it's heavily managed for um, shooting uh, grouse and, and deer in particular, so it's quite an interesting place, you know, you've got two radically different ways to managing the land and you're seeing a little bit of it in the, in the background there fascinating well we should start i guess with the the concept of rewilding as it is the the theme of the book uh for, for those who mightn't have come across the the concept of rewilding um before now uh can you give a bit of a, a background as to what the concept is and where it's come from yeah so it is a, a relatively new word actually i think it first appeared in dictionaries 2011 and as with new words, uh, the meaning kind of develops a bit in its uh, early days. But uh, as an environmental concept, what it means really is uh, letting nature get into the driving seat. It's about letting natural processes have their way and shape the landscape, as opposed to um, many traditional approaches to conservation, which are about kind of managing what is effectively a man-made environment or certainly heavily um, kind of influenced environment. At the start of the book, you do, uh, speaking about the difference between rewilding and conservation, you use a quote um, that rewilding is not an attempt to restore ecosystems to any prior state but to permit ecological processes to resume, which I think is a really helpful distinguisher for the conversation that we are, we are entering here. That um, uh, one particular story you tell about the Scottish Highlands and how people think it's a beautiful natural area that we need to preserve and look after actually goes against the idea of rewilding in itself. Can you explain why? Um, I, th I think what you're referring to is, you, you know, I, like many people, love the scenery of the Scottish Highlands. Uh, we have these we, these hills which are closely cropped by being grazed by by sheep and, and deer in particular, and we've learned to love that. And the trees only extend so far up the hills, which means when you go hill walking, you've got fantastic views and you're not kind of wading through deep undergrowth or kind of fighting your way through young trees. So it's a great area for 
for getting out and about hill walking and uh, moving around the tops of the hills. But, you know, that that's not what it would be like if nature had its way. You know, it, it would be temperate rainforest, basically, um, if regeneration was, was allowed to happen. And I suppose that's... Uh... I, maybe a helpful starting point with rewilding because reading the the book that was a bit of a game changer for me in the sense that you know I think a lot of people connect spirituality and nature there's a common connection there between people's spiritual lives and the natural world they live in but what we don't often think about is that the natural world we live in even nature in a way is cultivated even the the natural world that we we see around us and experience the sacred in is in a way um, a little bit artificial or a little bit um, influ- or quite quite a lot influenced by humanity. Can you tell me a bit about when you came across the idea of, of rewilding? So I came across this maybe four or five years ago. I was writing a previous book called The Invisible Church, which was a book based on research I'd been doing among people who are Christians but no longer engaged with a local church congregation in the traditional sense. So I've kind of noticed that um, that in Scotland, across the UK, across the Western world, really, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have disengaged from church. And I was quite eager to talk to some of them and to find out what, what was going on, uh, where they were, who they were, what their stories were. And what I discovered was that about two-thirds of those people who used to be kind of regular church attenders and now no longer were so, about two thirds of them would say that their their Christian faith was still very much at the heart of their lives, was still really important to them. Uh, which you know was a bit of a surprise to me. I guess you know many of us thought that people disengaged from church because of a kind of crisis of faith or whatever, but. Actually, you know, there's this whole kind of community out there, Christian community, which is not engaged with church. So, so I was writing that book, and I was actually struggling to write the last chapter of it. And in the last chapter, I was trying to reflect on what I discovered about the changing shape of the church. You know, so the church with a big C, if you like, you know, the the Christian community, as opposed to the institution. And I was collaborating with a, a cartoonist, actually, as I wrote that book, and he, he was drawing pictures of the, for the different chapters. And the one he, he drew for that chapter was a, a picture of a big ship sinking. And the ship's called The Church Unchanging. And it's surrounded in, in the sea by lots of little vessels and life rafts and bits of wreckage and individuals and little groups of people kind of clamoring to, to gather together. And I actually found what he drew quite a helpful illustration of how the church has become in the Western world. You know, that the big institutions are generally um, declining quite rapidly in, in many cases, including my own, my own denomination. But there's a, there's a springing up of, of small stuff, of diverse stuff. Um, so, you know, the church has changed shape completely. So... At the time I was trying to write that chapter, I happened to be part of a book group in our village that was reading a book called Feral um, by a chap called George Monbiot, and it was all about the environmental idea of rewilding. And I had this kind of epiphany, I suppose, for me personally. I thought, gosh, could it be that God is rewilding the church? Mm. And, And as I looked at the kind of, 
the empirical evidence I was working with as I was writing through the lens of principles of rewilding kind of seemed to make sense. And I just started making all these connections. And, and that, so I finished writing The Invisible Church, and, and, but the idea wouldn't go away. It kept niggling away at me. And I kind of started making a few notes and things, but I struggled, struggled to write it, actually. And, but each time I kind of started giving up, I discovered somebody else who was having some similar ideas Ooh. and was saying, no, this is important, you know. So, so I kind of stuck at it, and, uh, and that led to the, to the book you've mentioned, Rewilding Church, that came out last year. Well, I might ask you now, Peter, because I imagine in your position as Dean of the Cathedral through your your years, you would have heard of hundreds, I imagine, of um, programs and plans and strategies to save the church and to turn things around. We all hear often about how dire things things look. What was it about Steve's book and the idea of rewilding the church that, that struck a chord with you? Um, well, it seemed to be expressing using... Um uh, ecological language, some of the stuff that we've been trying to do for the last few years um, here, which is about trying trying to attend to what's emerging rather than trying to plan stuff into being. And I thought Steve's metaphor of the rewilding was a fantastic way of capturing that process. So you know, each, each year here at the cathedral we have a visioning day which is done on open space technology and it's it's really um, a way of trying to work out what what is the community what are members of the community perceiving god is doing and what sort of bubbling up that we should attend to rather than having a five-year strategic plan that we try to force into being and put a lot of energy into um, and particularly you know I've, and i've also just noticed with a lot of parishes um they have a desire for what they want to be, which is largely impossible. You know, a parish a parish that's full of people in their 70s and 80s wants to have a vibrant youth group is probably never going to have a vibrant youth group. But if it attended to what's emerging in its own space, would have a very vital um, ministry. But you know, this idea that we imagine imagine our future and then try to create it seems to me to have defeated the church's ministry for 20 or 30 years. And then when we add to it the fact that many of the church leadership think that the way to save the church is for everyone to have an MBA and uh, sort of uh, entrepreneurialise the church into some sort of um, relevant uh, institution just seems to me to be completely the wrong direction. And I think Steve's language is really helpful in helping us um, attend to what's emerging, um, invites us to, um, you know, Rowan Williams talks about working out what God's doing and joining in rather than us trying to manage um, mission. So... I just found the Steve's book really a helpful um, way of capturing what we're on about it. And you know, being an environmental scientist myself, it was sort of language that really spoke to me and captured some of the stuff we we need to be doing. And the thing I I think one of the things I liked about it was that you don't have to have grand plans and you don't have to be doing it for the whole of the church. It's about looking looking for the little seeds that are popping up. Mm sometimes in the 
um, and it's like the, the tree that's behind me, you know, the, you know, that, that, that tree keeps on regenerating from the rootstock. So it, it, that tree is probably 1,500 years old. And every time it looks like it's about to die, something new springs from the rootstock, which is deep in the ground. And it's, the, it's something that's really grounded quite deeply. And a new ring of trees uh, come up from the rootstock and it just keeps on. So out of, the, out of the death of the tree comes new life. And I thought that was a really helpful uh, way of looking at what we should be trying to do. I actually, I want to talk um, a little later on about uh, how part of rewilding the church, obviously, and you, you touch on this, Steve, um, requires letting things die, but we'll, we'll talk about that a little later on. What I want to first ask, Steve, is about um, how the church ever got domesticated, because I suppose for something to be rewilded, it first has to have lost its wildness. It has to become a domesticated thing. Um, how, how did the church become domesticated and in what ways is, um, is much of what we see in the church today a domesticated thing? Uh, uh, I'll answer your question, Don, but can I just respond to what Peter just said? I mean, I, I found that so encouraging to hear from Peter there. I, I jotted down on the paper in front of me here his first phrase, attending to what is emerging. Uh, that's su such a helpful idea and you know that is at, at the heart of this that we don't have a kind of a preconceived idea that we bulldoze our way towards but we we pay attention we listen we look we discern together and i, I was interested in what you said about how you gather um for these these vision days you know i mean that's that's part of the challenge you know how do we listen together mm. and discern what god is doing and joining in so yeah absolutely great so yeah how did we get to where we are it's a good question i mean i think uh in all of this there's often a strong parallel between what's happened with the natural environment and what's happened with the church in terms of the natural environment we have uh sought to control and, and constrain the environment to manage it for our own purposes, um, to make it how we like it to be. Uh, and now exchange the word natural environment for church. And it's the same story, really. You know, it's, it's our human nature, isn't it? Um, it's about putting ourselves in the driving seat mm. instead of, in the case of the church, God, or in the case of the natural environment, the, the, the natural processes that are at the heart of it. And, and I guess, you know, the, the big parallel, I think, that runs through the whole of this idea, and I, I hope kind of recurs throughout the book, is that, you know, in, in nature, at the heart of it is what we call biotic potential. So, you know, there's this innate capacity for, for growth and for, for regeneration. You know, if we let it get on with it, nature bounces back in the most Ooh. remarkable ways you know and if you doubt me just you know, lift a paving slab in your garden or you know stop mowing your lawn for a few weeks and, and see what happens it's incredible um and, and i think it's at the heart of the church is what paul calls you know the immeasurably great power you know there is life at the heart of both of these things both of which god has created and if we will uh Take a step back and, um, and and kind of hand over control. Then 
life bounces back. So, so what is it that stopped people doing this? I guess over the, over the journey, are we all just a species of control freaks who, you know, who are actually unable to surrender our own sense of control and sense of will? Is is that what has stopped? Um, I guess that that potential um, from emerging. Um, I think the answer is, is is yes. Yeah, I mean that that is that is the biblical narrative, isn't it? And and that is the history of the planet. Um, that we we like to control things. We need to control things. And you know, if you think of the biblical narrative in, in particular, you know, you've got that the kind of the rhythm, the the ups and downs of the people of God are are traced onto the degree to which they're willing to allow the living God to to breathe life into things and and to to do things in in, in God's way. Um, so yeah, it's, it's exactly that. I mean, it's uh, it is human nature at every level of our lives and and across society to want to to control and have our way and make things how we would like them to be. I mean, I was thinking when uh, Peter talked about their vision days, I mean, I, I've been part of, you know, dozens and hundreds probably of those kind of events with local churches. And I, I've always found that the big challenge is how do you help people get into that space, that mindset where we're trying to listen and discern what the living God is doing here, as opposed to, we are here to discuss how we would like things to be. Mm. And, I mean, that is such a stark difference. And, yeah, actually, in our lived experience, it can be quite a subtle, quite a subtle difference, and we very easily flow from one to the other. And, and you know, we're all, we're all guilty of that. Mm. Um, so, yeah. I think fear plays, plays an element in this as well, that, if we can build so what we think is a safe structure that looks like the the ship that should be unsinkable, just to go back to your cartoon, um, it you know it, it feels safe and if, and safety is one of the things that we yearn for, um, and and the whole concept of attending to what is emerging can be an incredible challenge to who we used to be. Um, it, it demands. Um, you know, throughout the 20th century, the church has had to face some really um, incredible issues that have changed the face of the church, um, all for the good, but have, have always been held back by people who were just worried that the change in the structure could will lose something. So, you know, the, you know, I think back now to the conversations we were having in our church nearly 30 years ago about the ordination of women and there were those who were worried that we would lose something really special by by changing the role of women. Um, you know, the, the, fruits, the fruits of the lived experience show that by attending to that emergent um, call of the spirit, we've actually enhanced the church and the church has been blessed by the most incredible ministries but I remember the voices, the voices that were the strong, the, the ones that held, had the most sway um, were not the ones who were arguing from theology and stuff like that, but the ones who, who were arguing that 
the, the, the chain, you know, we, we will do something irreversible and we'll lose something special. And so that the fear of the fear of losing what we have, even if we're dissatisfied with it, um, can be a really powerful, like Inca, dragging us, um, stopping us from just taking the chance. On and the thing I love about rewilding is it's not about it's not necessarily about oh, changing the whole thing at once. It's about doing safe to fail experiments and. And allowing each community to have a little dabble in something new that they think might be something that they can play with and, and then see where it leads. And if it transforms the whole of the church, well and good, but I think sometimes that's, again, our um, desire for control, that we think that the thing that we have noticed emerging is going to be the next big thing for the whole of the church and, and that we will be the famous author who came up with the next uh, alpha course or um, sort of <laughs> Jesus bingo or whatever it's going to be that, uh, that leads the church to the next great big thing. But you know, I, I, you know, I, think, I think rewilding is about how, how, how each little place can do its own thing. And just walking through the rainforest last week, because I, I, I knew this conversation was coming up, I was really taken by how there were lots of little little ecosystems that were doing their own thing and some of them were you know, some of them were dreadful I mean you know there were poor poor vines that should have been making their way to the top of the to the canopy to get to the light so that they could fruit that had really lost their way and sort of were basically screaming along the ground and were never going to go anywhere but it was an experiment that was worth trying and um, something else will emerge from in that space that won't be the intended vine. So, you know, I think I think um, overcoming that fear and just trusting the spirit and trusting trusting what is emerging is is part of what this is all about. I think though the the lots of little things emerging is scary mm. um, because authoritarian systems and I I do think that the church is actually um, been part of sustaining authoritarian systems. You know, we, it comes from, you know, we have some some patriarchal foundation there that's then continued to sustain authoritarian systems. And it's those existing authoritarian systems that can make people feel safe and secure. That's the narrative of many authoritarian structures is mm. that they say, we will keep you safe, we will keep you secure. And um, if you look like you're going to disrupt the central power and actually have a whole lot of little systems or your, your little boats to use um, the image Steve you gave us earlier you know that the, instead of the one big ship lots of little boats then that's very unnerving for people I think and that security um, is is a big need at the moment too. I think that's important the whole fear thing because because whether you're talking about the environment or whether you're talking about the church um, rewilding is is about change mm -hmm. and and change is is scary and change change does always mean loss mm. at some level doesn't it you know when when we change things we do trigger grief mm. reactions in, in people um however wonderful or, or not the change may be in, in the longer term there is always that element of loss and i think the other thing that and links into fear is is the unknown so 
if I was writing the book this year, I might actually have called it Wilding the Church rather than Rewilding, because there's been a bit of a debate in environmental circles about which term we should use, because having those two letters RE in front of Rewilding, it can suggest that we're, we're all about trying to return to something that was. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not the idea at all. So, so some people have started using the term wilding instead uh, for, for, for that reason. And I think in the book, I, I use the term uh, adventure quite a lot, uh, the adventure of faith. And, and that can sound a bit kind of, I don't know, a bit trite, a bit jargony. But, but for me, you know, adventure is about a journey, the outcome of which is unknown. Now, we've tended to domesticate the term adventure. So, you know, you sign up for an adventure holiday and uh, you don't expect to, to have a genuine adventure. I mean, you want your money back if you're taking on a genuine adventure, for sure. Uh, you know, you, you're assuming that your, your safety is guaranteed. Yes. And that, uh, you know, whoever's kind of planned the whole thing has got a pretty good idea of what's going to happen. <laughs> But the, but the life of faith is not like that, you know. Um, you know, so we people have referred to you know, Jesus as the wild Messiah. You know, C.S. Lewis talks about the spirit has been the great interferer. Um, and, you know, we're, we're dealing with, um, with a, a wild, dangerous, unfettered, uh, unpredictable... God. And, you know, when we respond to that call, follow me, that is an adventure. Mm. Not, not a call to, to conformity or, or, or to kind of be squeezed into a particular mold. Yeah. It, it's interesting as you say that even, um, even thinking back a few years to when I was part of a group who were developing a, a new evening service that we were going to run. And the idea of this was, um, that we wanted it to be something that that people who had no spiritual background might feel comfortable coming along to. So it was intentionally trying to remove a lot of the things that could um, make people a little bit confronted and see what could emerge. And it all sounded good at the first meeting, but we came to the second meeting and someone had written up on the board when we walked in the non-negotiables. <laughs> and so their idea was we can explore anything here, but it has to be between these hours on a Sunday night it has to involve Holy Communion. It has to involve a 10-minute message and we have to have some sort of live music involved. And so, you know, essentially we were following the same formula to make a slightly different cake rather than seeing what might actually emerge. And and I, I feel like that probably is what happens again and again and again is people think something needs to change. We need change because this thing isn't, it, it isn't fruiting. It isn't in, in any way really seeming to grow um, right now. So people realize there's a need for change, but our idea of change is essentially the same thing being repeated. But why do we keep doing that? I think, I think it's because, um, as, as you said, you had one meeting that was free form and then the second meeting um, was, was the beginning of the shutdown. I think in our culture, which is about results and KPIs, our culture demands that we very quickly jump to solutions. And taking the time, you know, and 
We also have in our culture the idea that a talk fest is a waste of time. So people will go to a conversation and say, oh, that was a waste of time. It was just a talk fest. But I actually think that if you spend a lot of time doing talk fests and you talk and you talk and you talk, the new thing will emerge. But our culture is so against taking time because it's utilitarian and time is money and all of those drivers means that if you're going to a meeting, you need to get, you, you've got to have an agenda, you've got to get stuff done, you've got to make some resolutions, mm. you've got to make some decisions. Whereas, you know, the, the first peoples tell us that you sit around the fire and you yarn and you yarn and you yarn and you yarn until you don't yarn, until there's a silence at the end of the yarning and then something emerges out of the silence. But, you know, the Western culture just drives us straight into that idea of, well, the last meeting was really great. We sort of had this free-ranging conversation, but we didn't decide anything. So someone comes to the second meeting saying, well, we've got to get on with this because, you know, we have to have the first of these events in three weeks' time because we've set ourselves this schedule. We, we've already made a decision when the first one's going to be, so we... We have to get on with it because we've got the advertising to do and we've got the Facebook posts to get out and, you know, catering and, and someone's got to give the message. And it just, the whole thing collapses down to planning again. And I think part of the rewilding thing is that it takes time. And, in, and what's emerging is not at all clear in the first instance. We might get an idea, but... One of the one of the things that can happen at visioning days, even like we have, is someone will have an idea, and that becomes the idea rather than letting a whole bunch of ideas be expressed and sit quietly, and eventually something emerges out of it. Um, you know, that's so countercultural. So I think we have to recognise that Western culture just drives us to this results outcome KPI-based approach that is almost innate in us. We have to have to defy our own selves in a sense and learn to sit quietly and teach ourselves to meditate and wait. You know, attend to attend is to wait. Absolutely. I think the, also that product is the other part of it. You know, we, we think we have to produce a product that's going to solve everyone's problems, you know, come to church and, and, and everything, and we have this product that's going to meet your deepest needs and it will slot in there. And then as soon as we're in that sort of product sale mentality, we're looking for, you know, like it's got to be a slick service, it's got to be professional, it's got to have a great sermon, it's got to have brilliant music, it's got to have, you know, the right people there. And you, as soon as you start to get into that product mentality, mm. then you're taking the focus off actually what it's all about. You know, we've actually lost, we've already lost the idea that the power is in the gathering and in the one who has gathered us, you know, and and I, I think that also feeds into the sort of perfectionism and thinking that marketing, you know, we've got something to market and we're out competing with, with other products. You know, we've got one product and there are many other products in the world. It's, it's all, we're just buying into that same competitive consumer culture as well. Yeah. It's interesting, Sue, that, that you mentioned that whole product thing that we sort of need to get out of our own way a little bit sometimes with, with that desire. Because I do remember with that evening service, I mentioned that we were about two months in and it wasn't, it was going okay. Some weeks were okay. Some weeks weren't. 
And then on maybe the ninth or 10th Sunday, there was a storm in the middle of the, the service and we had a blackout and suddenly all the AV shut down and all the lights went off. And we suddenly quite urgently had to attend to what this new circumstance was. And so there was, you know, no big hyped music and we all had to gather really close. And I think um, people had their iPhone torches out, sort of lighting the room a little bit. And suddenly the, the whole big planned product had fallen apart. And instead, a group of faithful people had responded to what had emerged in that present moment. And that was easily the best one of them that we had. So it's, it is funny how, um, how, I don't know, and you mentioned this in the book, Steve, when you're talking about, uh, and this is quite a drastic leap to make, but you talk about Chernobyl as an example of how humans get in our own way. And when we get out of our own way, when we get out of the space, nature just does its thing. Yeah, I mean, some of the best examples we have of, of rewilding in nature are have been the result of, of humanitarian crises um, or you know, disasters, and, and, and nobody's suggesting that's, that's the way forward uh, to, to deliberately create those things. But, it, but those things have shown us um, what happens um, when things change really drastically, and, and we're not very good at changing things drastically ourselves. So sometimes when those things happen for other reasons, we can observe and think, wow, gosh, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the biodiversity around the Chernobyl plant, you know, as a result of, of humankind being excluded has been quite, uh, quite remarkable. Um, and, you know, they've compared it to some, um, uh, some kind of conservation areas bounding onto it. And, and it's remarkable how the biodiversity there is, is much greater than in some of those nature reserves. Near, nearby but where there are there is more kind of human influence i think um a quote that you have is that uh a nuclear disaster it seems to be less of a problem for nature to flourish than humans which is um <laughs> you know quite quite a stark uh quote but i i suppose there is a truth to it that um i don't know that the the image i had reading the book is just that that humans do hold things we tend to hold things so tightly and, um, and you know, that, that is an interesting metaphor because anytime something that is living, that is breathing is held too tightly, the airflow is cut off and the thing sort of tends to, to struggle to, to stay alive. So I don't know what I, what I was struck by in the preparation of this conversation was I was talking to somebody about it and, um, I, I mentioned your book and how we were going to discuss this idea of rewilding the church. And they said to me, and this probably shows the instinctive nature of this. They said, so what would a rewilded church look like? <laughs> and and all I could say to them was, if I know, then it's not really rewilded, is it? But but that is still, even even after we had a good conversation about it, still the instinctive response is, what's the outcome going to be? How's that going to help us achieve the KPIs Peter was talking about? I mean, maybe maybe a starting point in this is to realize just how ingrained all this stuff is within us. Is that is that fair, Steve? Yeah, no, I think that's right. That's really interesting. That, I mean, I've heard that so many times. What you what you just said there, somebody said to you. Um, I mean, I guess whilst we should never, in a sense, be able to predict the outcome, there are some things we could say about what a rewilded church looks like. So, you know, one of them I would suggest is that at its heart, there is this rhythm between patient listening and courageous action. Um, which, of course, doesn't predict the shape of it, if you like, but is, a, is more to do with the values at, at the heart of it. 
um, and I said patient listening, courageous action. In some ways, it, it's courageous listening is what we what we need too, because uh, I think one of the things I say in the book is the thing about listening is you don't know what you're going to hear mm. until you've heard it. And that's another part of the adventure nature of this, isn't it? You know, when we choose to listen, mm. if it's real listening, we, we've no idea what we're going to hear. Mm. And, you know, in, in rewilding in terms of the environment, one of the, one of the quite controversial things is about reintroducing keystone species. So, you know, a, a well-known example is the reintroduction of wolves to, to Yellowstone National Park in, in the mm. States. Until the 1990s, more than 70 years, there hadn't been wolves there. Uh, the elk in particular had, had had their own way and they kind of browsed and, and grazed and a lot of plant life was not able to regenerate because of that grazing. And as a result of that, riverbanks were collapsing and the courses of rivers were changing. So anyway, they, they reintroduced a small group of, of wolves. And in a relatively short space of time, everything changed. So this bringing back one species had this huge impact as the ripples went out. And, and we've seen the same in areas of Scotland, actually bringing back the beavers in, in recent years and, and in the south of England as well, where beavers have been reintroduced. Um, the, what they call trophic cascades. So the, these kind of multiple domino effects that go out across the environment are just quite amazing. You know, the actual composition of the soil changes as a result of bringing back uh, some keystone species. And so in the book, I, I, I take that as a kind of example and say, well, you know, the ultimate keystone uh, in our faith is, is Jesus himself. What, what does it mean to reintroduce Jesus into our lives and our groups and networks and, and churches? Yeah, and I'm not, of course, I'm not suggesting he's been absent, um, but what does it mean to, you know, consciously, ongoingly, and again, it's, it's what that listening is all about. Yeah. You're trying to discern, what, what, what does Jesus think of this? What, what, is, what does he want us to do? What is he doing in, in this community? What would it mean for us to, to join in, to be his accomplices in, in this, this particular context? I think that's the power of a, of a really good metaphor, isn't it, too, is that it actually it takes us, launches questions that we have to live into. It gives us the questions because, you know, people are always looking for the six steps to church success or, or what's the formula for how you can rewild the church then, you know. Um, <laughs> but instead, you, you know, you're giving, if we are actually taking this seriously, it can bubble up questions. We say, how do, well, what, what could be, you know, the, the, um, the, the key species? What are, and I know you go into this, what are the pests? What are the, what are the noxious elements that are actually inhibiting growth and inhibiting diversity in our, um, in our, ecosystem and you know to be able to take that metaphor and then go okay we've got to now ask that question of ourselves um means that it, that it is very real and it's we're talking about the energy of our own places in our own relationships in our own communities so i think it's a very powerful thing you know is so and people can't listen to this podcast and go away with the six steps but they might go away with some of these questions um which i think uh, could be you know really fruitful i know when you were talking about um, what were some of the pests and the, and you, you talked about busyness and, um, and the things that were 
were noxious to um, to a healthy ecosystem. And, you know, I, I really um, resonated with that, that that busyness and the pace um, can take us away. One thing that I thought of as well um, is purity culture. I, I find that that's, and, and I love the way also you emphasise that it's not, you're never saying individuals or people are the pests or that, you know, they have to be driven out. We're never saying that. Um, but there are some some things that can lead us into having a, an overgrowth of, of the wrong stuff or or taking us away from our so yeah purity culture was one that I came up with that I think I can track through history a little bit um yeah I, I thought it was a really fascinating question yeah yeah no I think that's right so I mean it, environmentalists talk about invasive species you know those species that probably come from somewhere else uh, another environment, but have this kind of dampening effect on things. And and to be honest, when I was writing the book, I came up with quite a long list <laughs> to start with of, of things that I thought could be seen as invasive species. But as I kind of, as I reviewed that and thought about it and prayed about it and kind of boiled it down, I, I came up with actually quite a small number that I thought, yeah, these are widespread cultural characteristics in our church institutions that are invasive species. You know, they, they've got no rightful place amongst us, but they've crept in and they actually have quite a negative impact. And, and you mentioned one, you know, busyness. Uh, and another one is what I call frenetic activity, which, which may sound very similar to busyness, but it is more what can emerge out of it. I, I see frenetic activity as being the outcome of when we fail to do that listening, when we fail to discern our part in God's mission, then we feel we have to do everything. Mm. You know, if we're not if we're not confident about this is what we're going to do, and therefore we're going to feel, uh, we're not going to feel guilty about all the other stuff. If we don't get to that place, then we do tend to feel we've just got to do everything. And, and, and you see churches, even very kind of small, uh, rural churches just trying to do so much, you know, and constantly living on the edge of what's humanly possible, um, and and people falling off the edges, you know, because they're just kind of burnt out, really. Mm. Yeah, and the other, I think the other one I mentioned, kind of cultural characteristic that I think is an invasive species, is what I call traditionalism, um, and I, and I'm careful to distinguish that from tradition. So, you know, tradition being the good stuff, if you like, that, that is passed on from generation to generation, the, the kind of the heart of our, our faith. Whereas traditionalism is more about revering the past or, you know, anchoring ourselves in the present. Um, and, and that too, I think is quite widespread and can be quite, quite destructive. It, it, it's an interesting, um, I guess, thinking of invasive species as, you know, anything that comes in that gets in the way of life or that corrupts life or that gets in the way of the natural processes. I suppose it becomes clear how much, you know, those things like busyness and frenetic activity and whatever, that, that these things are uh, the wiring that we need to be aware of. If you're going to have a conversation about rewilding the church, if this is something that communities are going to really take on board you almost have to um, to realize that, or st as a starting point, the way in which we are all addicted to success, addicted to KPIs, as Peter said, addicted to all these sorts of things. You see it in the education system, in politics, 
all the language is about excellence, results, achievements, strategies, plans. I mean, if you walked into most businesses in the world and said, I think we should rewild the business and not have any strategies and just see what emerges, you'd probably not last a week in that particular industry, which is strategy-based and outcomes-based and whatever else. So I suppose the question I have is, is um, how do we get past our addiction, our inculturation to, um, you know, to only think of things in terms of outcomes and excellence and success to actually let nature have its way. How can we actually get past ourselves on that one? So I think I've been quite encouraged by the responses I've had to some of the ideas in this book, which I didn't necessarily expect. So, yeah, we were just talking about invasive species. And across the board, I mean, I, because of the pandemic and things, I, I've been able to link with lots of book groups and, and conferences and discussion things in a way that I probably wouldn't have been able to if it had been published earlier or, or later. And um, it's amazing how people do recognise those invasive species. You know, I've, I've not had arguments with people about, well, no, no, I don't think business is a problem. I don't think phonetic... Uh, activity is is an invasive species in the church. I don't think traditionalism is is, is a problem at all. Um, these are wide, widely recognised things. People go, yeah, that's that's right, that's right. And I think that idea again of the rhythm of of listening and acting, of discerning together, it's such a simple thing, and it's applicable at every level so you know whether you're a, a kind of a, a small group or whether you're uh, involved in the leadership of a, of a very large institution the principle is actually exa exactly the same mm. and we start where we start we start where we're from where we're at you know and just like i said you could uh, experiment with rewilding in your garden by lifting a paving slab we can do similar things in our institutions, I think. We can do, we can do small things. And when we do those small things, we'll be amazed. We'll be encouraged mm. at, at what happens. Um, and that will encourage us to do other things. Mm. We, we had a thing in the UK. I, I don't Maybe out in Australia too, although it would have been a, a different name. In the UK, we had something this year called No Mow May, where people were encouraged not to mow their lawn during the month of May, <laughs> because um, particularly in the south of England, uh, less so in Scotland, I guess May is, is the month where, you know, seed heads come and flowers come up. And if we're constantly mowing it, of course, that doesn't happen. But by leaving it just for one month, people saw a remarkable change. You know, people talked about, wow, you know, I saw birds coming into my garden I've never seen before, the insect life I could hear the insect life on my lawn which i've never heard before uh, and quite a number of people decided at the end of may they weren't gonna mow their lawn because <laughs> they actually quite liked what was springing up you know they could see the beginnings of a meadow almost rather than a lawn you know and it's such a it's the first time it happened this year some people who do gardening programs on tv got behind this put it out there and uh yeah, remarkable. It was just a small thing, yeah. but it changed people's understanding and mindset. And people suddenly saw, oh gosh, yeah, lawn is kind of a monoculture imposed on this bit of soil that happens to be in my garden. 
and uh, yeah, might, maybe it would be more interesting to to uh, to let nature have its way a little bit. So, so I think yeah, there's lots of parallels. We can do little things wherever we are in, in the institutions of the church, um, or not. I think that's a real parallel with the way with also with the busyness thing there because I mean the no mo may means that you've actually got a bit more time. Yeah. And and in, in the church we're so good at adding things on and you see people working so hard, and and yet there can be more natural ways with less work. Um, where where we don't feel I, I, my favorite one of my favorite sayings is if you feel in ministry like you're pushing a heavy boulder uphill you're doing it wrong, and there and I think there is that parallel with the natural world we actually create by having vast lawns we create more work for ourselves, um, and we have to then keep on maintaining those things that we've created when when there could be a natural less work way to approach it. Mm. That's outstanding. I think no mo May could catch on here. It would probably be no mo October or, or November, maybe something like that. But yeah. but I think it has enormous potential, and it's probably the best social cause of all time in that it requires you to not do something um, rather than do something. But it is it's so fascinating when you think of a lawn that way that we we kind of have done it just for a manicured appearance. We have this manicured, cut down, um, very one uh, color sort of piece of nature in our backyard just because we've decided that that's what looks good it's a i guess it's a it's a bizarre thing and this relinquishing of control leads me to i guess something i I flagged earlier on in the conversation which is um something peter cat talks about in the cathedral every um every easter around lent time peter you always talk about what is in us that needs to die what do we need to let die this lent which is the most helpful lent question i've ever come across much more helpful I, I find than um what am i giving up you know for these 40 days or whatever else is what in me needs to be um let to die i, I suppose the interesting question for talking about rewilding the church is that there are a lot of people in who are left in the churches who have such a love of what is happening or what they grew up with or you know they love the liturgy looking exactly like this and they love the gatherings that go exactly this way just as they did 70 years ago or whatever it might be there is this need if we're going to rewild to do what nature does which is let things die occasionally to let new things grow out of them how how scary is the thought i suppose that maybe rewilding the church means that so much of what even we think about when we hear the word church today might die and be transformed as a result um, well, that yeah, that, that goes to that heart of what we're talking about before about fear. Um, like, I guess that's why we need to ensure people that um, rewilding is about attending to what's emerging, rather than feeling like you have to decide in advance what's going to die, because mm. that's the other thing we do in the church is we, you know, we have you know. Someone in head office decides that Parish X is not viable and so we go and sell the church building rather than entering into a process of discernment and seeing what's emerging, which may may mean that the church is no longer used as a place of worship, but it might end up being a place that feeds refugees or turns into a preschool. Um, Just going to the straight death thing and and getting rid of the body um, straight away is not necessarily 
well, this is about it. And I think I think people people's fears should be attended to. Um, and if we if if people can catch the vision that this is about small experiments and attending to what's emerging, then it's not going to be whole as bold as shock change. And the things that the things that need to die, we will discern together and we will let them go and we will have proper liturgies. Um, you know, I think I think of a, a lovely death that we've had in the life of our diocese is, um, you know, we had the Girls' Friendly Society, which more or less doesn't exist anymore. Um, but they, they had a property which uh, had been used for young, to, uh, young women who'd come into the city for educational reasons. And over the years, it had, it had morphed into a um, women's refuge and then it no longer filled that role because of OHS purposes. And the GFS um, sold the building, but with the idea that they would use it as a resource to to uh, resource new things. And so they 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 went into this amazing process of discernment where they realised that it was never going to be what it had been. It couldn't be used for its current purpose. But they didn't just sell it off and and say, "Oh, well, that was all. It's all over." They actually discerned what was going to rise up out of um, what had been. And they've, they've, they've got this incredibly effective ministry now for the new. They're actually, you know, they, they continue uh, a ministry which is now about nurturing the new stuff that's emerging. But they went on this long journey to get there. So there wasn't some very quick decision that left people with grief you know, like so when we decide to just when head office just decides to close the church, for instance, you just you you disable and disenfranchise a whole lot of people who have been doing faithful stuff and and discredit what they're doing. And I think it's really important that we don't discredit that which has been, but we do attend to what's emerging from it. And if we did that in a more collaborative way rather than a top-down way um, we would be finding a whole lot of you know some places would be sold because it was better that they were but others would be transformed or turned into community resources um, and if the people are allowed to be participants in discerning what's emerging in their place and there'll be something to celebrate rather than just something to mourn and I think I think if we're going to be true to the Christian paradigm, it is stuff does have to die, and and sometimes it will die in ways that are terrible because that's part of the Good Friday story. But we also have to attend to what emerges out of the good. Um, you know, we, we've talked before in the podcast about the importance of Holy Saturday. You actually do have to wait, and you do have to wait in the unknowing, but then you attend to what does spring up on Easter Day in the dawn. So it can be very hard to see at first. You know, Jesus was not recognised clearly by Mary. She thought he was something else. Um, but by attending to what was emerging, the new life, um, she recognised the transformed Jesus. So I think, you know, all of that sets us up for a comforting narrative to people about change. I think 
I think one of the reasons people are so fearful of change at the moment is that we've done it very poorly in the past. We've done it hurriedly, we've done it capriciously. Um, and again, with KPIs and all of that stuff in mind. It's a fascinating point, Peter, when you talk about that fear and that anxiety that a lot of people have that something's going to be lost and that's what makes them or makes us cling even harder to, to what is there. Um, it is, I, I suppose it's one of those funny things and that that ends up perpetuating the cycle again and again of, mm. you know, things die a little bit more. So we grip even tighter and all that does is make them die a little bit more. And then we grip tighter cause they, we see them slipping away and, yeah. um, you know, actually letting nature run its course and trusting reality in a sense, trusting nature that, that, um, that life will do its thing. If you give it the space, it's, it's an incredibly hopeful vision. And I suppose, um, I suppose in a sense, uh, Steve, the, the main sense I had after reading your book was that this is the most hopeful book about or idea about the future of the church that I've ever come across because it isn't a vision which requires or expects or anticipates that in 50 years it will look like this and it will have this many number of people. It's not trying to resurrect anything. It's not, you know, it, all it is doing is slowing down, letting go and trusting and whatever emerges is the right thing. It's an incredibly hopeful and um and non-daunting vision for the path forward. Is that the response you've got from people who've read the book? Yeah, it is. I, I think um, I think the very nature of the metaphor that we're, we're talking about, because it's about life, because it's about this kind of bounce-back ability of, 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 of nature and then applying that to the church, it is a hopeful thing. And, and actually, I mean, the last chapter is called Hope, isn't it? Hope mm. from... From uh, from lament to trust, I think we explore the idea of, of lament, you know, and how um, the, the kind of trajectory of lament is is intrinsically hopeful, you know, and takes us to a place of, of deeper trust. Um, and yeah, we were just talking about death. I mean, the, the thing about death in in nature is that um, so often the the dying phase, if you like, in in the life of organisms is an incredibly fruitful um and you know paradoxically life-giving things so you know uh, i talk in the book i think about uh, oak trees you know the, the natural course of events for oak trees is that they grow for 300 years and they rest for 300 years and they die over 300 years but it's it's during those 300 years of dying that paradoxically they're full of life and they give so much to, to other organisms and, and the environment around them. Um, so I think, you know, in, in our church context too, that we should, um, should recognize that, that this rhythm in the life of, of, uh, of our institutions and, and the particular things we do. And yes, there are phases of growing, but actually the, the, phases of dying can be incredibly fruitful and, and Peter gave a really helpful example there. yeah that's beautiful that's a beautiful note to to end the conversation on I think the book is called Rewilding the Church by Steve Acethorpe um, thank you so much for, for writing it and for making time to join us for a conversation Steve oh thanks so much great to, to meet you Sue Peter Tom. thanks <laughs>